Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ball and Chain podcast. Uh, Ball and Chain, as always, is brought to you by Zen Sports, which is the peer-to-peer mobile sports betting app where anybody can create and accept sports bets with anyone else in the world without the need for a bookmaker. Um, I am your host, Mark Thomas, and uh, we are now at the almost two-month mark of shelter in place, especially for those of us in San Francisco, uh, where we sheltered in place pretty much first in the country. Uh, And a lot of us started working from home well before that. Um, I'm personally, uh, it's a struggle. Uh, I'll say that. Uh, I uh, live in a small 430 square foot apartment in San Francisco. And we pay exorbitant rents here in San Francisco because we like to be able to go out and do things, not because of the size of place that we get in return for those exorbitant rents. So we're getting the worst of both worlds right now, exorbitant rents and tiny place to uh, live in and, and be holed up in. Um, it's a nice day though in San Francisco. It's really warm today. Uh, it's actually borderline hot. Um, and I'm as such going to leave my patio window door open uh, because again, no place in San Francisco is air conditioning. So <laughs> we need some fresh air in here. And so if you hear any trucks or sirens or people being loud outside, uh, you're just going to have to uh, deal with that, unfortunately, today. Uh, it's part of the shelter in place, part of uh, living in the city with no AC, and part of um, having the windows open. So let's get into where things are at sports-wise. Um, so just to kind of take a step back, so the sports leagues all pretty much went on pause All the major sports leagues went on pause uh, about in mid-March, NBA March 12th, and the rest of sports followed suit shortly thereafter. So again, we're almost upon two months now with no sports as well. Um, Esports, though, is rocking and rolling. Uh, So it's one of the few things that can go on when people are sheltered in place is people playing esports, playing video games, uh, being able to bet on esports. In the case of Zen Sports, we rolled out esports betting last month. And then lo and behold, uh, MMA is probably the uh, considered the first non-video uh, game or non-esports to come back online, which they're having their UFC card 249 tomorrow night. So we're recording this on Friday, May 8th. Um, by the time our listeners hear this, uh, the UFC fight will have already taken place. Uh, I know Dana White uh, was talking about it yesterday. Uh, well, I don't know if he was on Twitter, but the news stories were on Twitter Uh, with regards to what he was saying. And basically he's like, look, we can make this happen because it's just basically, you know, uh, a couple of guys fighting a referee, of course, and doesn't require large amounts of people to play or large audiences. And so of course they're doing it without an an audience, uh, without a crowd. And, uh, and I have to say, I agree with that. Um, I mean, let's start getting sports back. Um, We need to start getting them back in the fray and back in our lives. And MMA UFC is going to be the first one back. Uh, it sounds like golf is going to be returning in June and the rumors still have NBA and NHL playoffs returning some point in July, although nothing definitive baseball, I think is in a trickier spot. It's much iffier uh, simply because they haven't started their season yet. Right. The NBA and NHL can just dive headfirst into the playoffs, but, um, but the baseball, but MLB has to start their season from scratch and then NCAA football season. What's going to happen there. Um, what's really interesting about NCAA football compared to the NFL is they need the fans because a lot of their revenue comes from gate uh, uh, tickets. And so they need uh, the fans more than the NFL, which, you know, of course they have most of their TV, most of their revenue from TV uh, deals and media deals. And the NFL just released their schedule yesterday. Uh, I, I don't think they're going to run into any issues. Now, whether they have fans at the games in the early days or not, in the first few games will, will remain to be seen, but I don't think they're going to have any problems at all in starting their schedule in September. So with that overview, um, I am excited to um, welcome uh, as our episode six podcast guest today is Dan Rubin uh, from Cleet Street and uh, excited to have him here. We're going to be talking about uh, sports betting, of course, and uh, specifically analytics and a lot of the numbers that go into uh, really uh, odds and how to find value in specific sports bets how to pick those right games, how to uh, stay away from the temptation that can come with uh, FOMOing and uh, YOLOing. Uh, So we're going to dive into all of that today. 
and look at more kind of the technical or the analytical side of sports betting uh, with Dan. So welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining us today on Ball and Chain. Hey, Mark. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So let's just start off first uh, for our audience to uh, get into more about your background, uh, kind of where you originally started out on the analytics side, how that morphed into sports betting, um, and kind of what you're currently doing uh, these days uh, with regards to uh, sports being a little bit more on hiatus. Sure. Um, So I I guess, you know, my origin with kind of sports analytics uh, goes back to my undergraduate days um, at UC San Diego. So I went there, studied management science, which was um, the combination of kind of finance, um, economics and and math. And my I, I really emphasized in the econometrics space and my. Uh, actually, I wrote my honors econometrics thesis on predicting how college basketball players would translate into the NBA. And this was, you know, this, I don't know, 12 years ago now, um, kind of a lot, a while before a lot of the kind of more mainstream machine learning and stuff took off. So, you know, I was using more you know, regression type analytics stuff. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of fun for me. I knew I was going to get into finance at some point, and uh, I just really wanted to do that as a senior thesis. Um, upon graduation, I took a job with a small uh, valuation consulting firm in San Diego called Caliber Advisors. And I worked there for about uh, seven years, uh, starting as an associate, moving all the way up to a vice president in charge of the uh, derivatives valuation practice. So effectively, clients would reach out to us. They would um, have something that they needed analyzed uh, for valuation purposes. You know, it could be for a variety of reasons. You know, sometimes we're doing economic damages. Other times uh, I was valuing you know, billion dollar debt portfolios and the embedded derivatives within those. Um, so I did, I did that for a while. And uh, I, you know, I, I always just really liked sports. You know, I grew up playing with baseball cards with my dad and uh, you know, sports betting was something that uh, was just kind of around my family. You know, we would enter these kind of like parlay pools and stuff uh, with my, with my, you know, dad's friends and stuff. We'd go to Vegas as a kid and I'd be, you know, running around with the pieces of paper from the sports books that my dad would get for us. And we would bet 20 bucks on a game here or there. Uh, So it was always something that, that I wanted to do. And um, the opportunity never really, really came up early in my career. Uh, In 2018, I, you know, started to, maybe step away from the finance world a little bit and went to business school um, out in New York and Columbia. And it was then I w- in my fall semester, so this would be fall 2018, um, I was working as the teaching assistant for Mark Brody's sports analytics course and PASPA had just been repealed several months prior. And, you know, it was just kind of everything kind of worked out where I thought, you know what, hey, I could start using my analytics to, uh, you know, my analytical background to, you know, do something in the sports space. Uh, b- before before all this, I was, you know, betting occasionally, started to um, generate some decent returns, but it was all kind of small, small fish until I decided to really take that leap um, in, in fall 2018 with the betting. Cool. So, so getting into kind of the start of your desire to use your analytics and finance background uh, and quantitative background to apply that to sports betting, um, so we'll get into Cleet Street uh, specifically here in a minute, but uh, you know, prior to starting Cleet Street, were you just kind of then taking that background and experience and applying it to your own one-off bets? Like, uh, you know, were you betting offshore? Were you betting online? Like, how much were you betting? Like, what what were you doing on the non kind of business side of things uh, to apply your experience to um, you know sports betting? And what did that look like? Sure. So. Um I would say I first started really betting maybe six years ago and I had a, you know, I had, you know, I had no computer programming background whatsoever, 
but I had friends who I said, you know what? I really want to start analyzing baseball betting lines. And so I had a friend write a web scraper to grab me all this data. And I started looking at, you know, just how anyone would begin to look. They start looking at trends and um, I was sort of looking at baseball games the same way and the prices on baseball teams um, in a similar manner in which you might look at the stock market and say, you know, this team has underperformed recently. There might be a market overreaction. There may be some value there. And I didn't really have a ton of analytics behind it. You know, again, this was five, six years ago. Um, so I put like a portfolio together of like 10 grand. And I said, you know, I'm going to bet you know, $300 a game, which is about, you know, 3% um, of your of your bankroll, let's say, and let's just see what happens. And I was very selective. It was mostly, like I said, baseball, early season, um, where there, uh, that just tended to be where there was the most kind of mispricing in my very naive eyes at the time. And, you know, it did okay. For the next four years or so, I was making you know, maybe 10 grand a year, ish uh just you know kind of picking off some 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 lines that had value uh kind of i would say last year i took a a, a bigger step um after working in the sports analytics department at columbia i started to really kind of i'd say tie together the finance kind of formal financial education i had with the sports analytics and um, really started to work on a more fundamental model, you know, using historical data from, from teams to come up with a value uh, for each team, and then really just start comparing that to the price of the market. Uh, I, you know, the long, you know, at the same time, I said, well, let's actually throw some real money at this. Um, I had uh, a friend now, a co-founder to me, um, Aaron, Aaron Cho, who actually, we, we go way back, he co-wrote um, my uh, uh, my honors econometrics thesis back in 2009 with me um, on the basketball stuff. But where was that at? That was at UC San Diego. Okay. Uh, we 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 wrote. Yeah, we we partnered up for that for that honors thesis. So kind of full circle. Um, you know, I was working on some stuff. He said, "Well, let's let's do this together. Let's throw some money at it." So we we created a portfolio of about a little over hundred thousand dollars and we started to use more formal methodologies. We started to, you know, use a kind of Kelly criterion, um, bet, bet sizing. Um, we started to, you know, more aggressively make sure we're getting the best lines and such. And so we, we had a really successful 2019 in which we made, uh, about $130,000, on close to $2 million in wagers. So that was, um, you know, and that was primarily baseball. I do some oh, stuff six and a half football. percent. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. Um, we, we, we did really well. Uh, we, I'd say, you know, maybe 80% of that was from the baseball, um, MLB and the rest was from NFL. And, uh, you don't touch, you didn't touch NBA, NHL or anything like that. And is, know, is there a reason why? Uh, NHL, you know, I just, I never grew up watching hockey, so I just don't feel that I understand the game as well as some other people. But if you're using analytics, would that matter? I think it does to an extent. I think you've got to understand, um, why certain things on the court or on the ice happen and what, and how to distinguish between what is truly a skill and what is more or less noise. Um, so I, 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 I focused on baseball for, for two main reasons initially, and I, maybe like three reasons. So the first one being that there are so many games that if you find a small edge, uh, you could exploit it many times over because there's over 2,400 games in a season. Um, the second uh, is that there's great pricing in baseball generally um, from sportsbooks. Generally, you're working with a, um, on, a, on a smaller VIG or hold from, from the sportsbook. So you're generally a little closer to um, becoming profitable than you. Why do they charge sports. a smaller VIG on baseball? You know, I'm not a, a baseball historian here, uh, but I would, I, I would guess that because they have so many games, um, they can, you know, ride out 
the vol, you know, the noise of the season a little easier. Sportsbooks can, um, and also it's a money line sport, and just maybe there's more price sensitivity on money lines than you know your typical minus one ten on a on a on a point spread. Really, because I, I actually like point spread betting on on MLB. Is that a is that a mistake to to do point spread betting oh, to on the, baseball to, the, to do the run line? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's a mistake. You might pay a little higher vig. Uh, so you know that is what it is. But it, it changes the game a little bit. Uh, oh yeah, that one and a half runs uh, doesn't always uh, align your your motive your motives with the team. You know, I love I love betting the money line because you're always aligned with the team. You know, they're all trying to win the game. They're not necessarily all trying to win by, you know, two runs. Right. But you could say the same thing about football, but I think what the difference is with baseball is like, you might not play the bottom half of the ninth inning if a team is up by, if the home team's up by one. Right. So you don't even get that chance to win by half. In, fa- in fact, if it goes to extra innings, if you pick the home team at minus one and a half, you're basically screwed unless there's a multi home, um, um, you know, guy on base when the guy hits a walk off home run. Yeah, you can't win by two another way. Yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> Generally, <laughs> you're in trouble. If you're, if you're a visiting team, minus one and a half, you can you still can pull it out uh, going into extra innings. But that's that's one difference I would say between the other sports is the other sports play out the full game, so you can still get the 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 you know cover. You can get a backdoor cover, whatever it might be. But in baseball, you can't really get backdoor covers. Yeah, that's that's pretty difficult. And then the last thing why I love baseball, and there's similarities between baseball and football, um, in the sense that uh, not only is it a discrete event sport where the plays start and stop, which makes it easier to quantify, but uh, underlying performance doesn't correlate with scoring um, as tightly as it would in the NBA. The NBA's got you know 100 and some possessions. Uh, you can't get too much more granular than like a points per possession type analysis. Um, in baseball, though, you know, runs are clustered together. You know, you probably a lot of people probably heard of cluster lock. You know, that that term has been coined by Joe Pita in his trading bases book several years back. But it, it really rings true. Um, you could have a great game. You could throw a great game as a pitcher, but you had all your, you know, opposing hits concentrated in one inning and you gave up three runs and you get the loss. Um, so uh, all those things, it makes it a lot easier. Um, that's why I, I attacked baseball first and it seemed to work out. Okay. So, but my question then would be, cause I'm, I'm a, I'm not a, I'm not like as in the weeds on all the sabermetrics numbers that are out there, but you would think with the, you know, advent of sabermetrics that more people would have access to that data, including the sports books, um, than, um, you know, used to be the case when like in the eighties and nineties and maybe early two thousands, when that those advanced analytics weren't out there in baseball, people would, you know, just look at batting average and RBIs, which is probably the worst set in all of baseball uh, and, uh, and, and stuff and, and not really understand like, you know, batting average for balls in play or um, you know, whatever uh, exit velocity. Well, exit velocity is a much newer one too. But anyway, so like with it, with all that information out there, I mean, isn't it kind of more of a, I don't want to say a level playing field, but um, you know, anybody can go on fan graphs or whatever and find out these advanced stats as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think fan graphs and a number of other uh, companies have great data. Um, but, you know, I guess my counter to that would be if that were the case, you would see very little price movements once lines were released and lineups were announced. Um, and that's just simply, isn't always the case. You know, I think we've done a good job of kind of gathering as much um, historical data as we could and looking at uh, not only closing lines and opening lines, but everything in between. Uh, We've built up a nice database where we can look at any minute between the opening line and closing line, what, you know, the, the line was at, at, you know, multiple different sports books. And by studying that, you can see that, um, you know, if, if it were a truly efficient market, you would expect lines to move really only when new information comes out. And that just isn't, I mean, it's probably more so than it was, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, lines are definitely more efficient than they were there then, I would assume. But um, I, I don't think we're to the point anywhere near where maybe this, you know, the financial markets are in terms of efficiency. So we're going to talk about that later. I want to get into uh, uh, efficiencies and efficient market hypothesis and that good stuff definitely later. So, uh, so a couple of things really quickly. Was there a th- was there a third thing about baseball? Oh no, you had said all three. Is that uh, just the, the the clustering of 
of runs, the pricing, and the just the sheer number of games okay. made it attractive. So then why not NBA betting? I understand no NHL betting because you didn't grow up with that. Um, by the way, I only started getting into hockey about five years ago. And now I'm a diehard Sharks fan. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but so why no NBA? Or, uh, yeah, why no NBA betting then? Um, it's it's difficult to be honest. Um, I've, what makes it difficult? I, I think um, two th- probably two things that make it difficult. One is we talked a little bit about points per possession and how it's it's very difficult to get more granular um, than points per possession in, in basketball. You know, you, you, you come up with a model and you would say, well, how do I differentiate the outcome of the game from the underlying performance of the team? And uh, it's, it's very difficult to do um, unless, you know, there's players that were, were, were missing and such. So uh, in my opinion that, you know, when there's 120 possessions in some of these games these days, uh, the better team usually wins. Uh, there's not as much parity. And because of that, uh, you know, everyone knows what the price is. You just don't have as many price fluctuations as you do in, in, a, in a game where there's more parity, such as baseball. I agree with that on the money line, but I would say that point spread betting and over-under betting on the NBA is doable. I I would focus – I saw – so I, I don't bet anything in, in, the, in the NBA currently. Um, that might change. I, I had them – I got the closest on uh, totals, actually, uh, just because the other kind of variable at play there is pace. Um, you Win totals, like, you mean? Uh, I'm sorry, M- NBA totals, NBA uh, game totals. Got it. Yeah, the over-unders. Uh, I would, I, you know, to me, there's a second factor at play there. There's there's pace. And, um, you know, now all of a sudden, you're not just looking at, you know, the relative efficiency of, of, of each team or the relative value of each team, but also uh, pace and how teams interact with one another when it comes to pace. You know, what happens when a fast team plays a slow team? Um, what happens when two fast teams play each other, right? These types of factors are now something that you can assess and um, that may, you know, might bear fruit. I mean, we, I haven't gotten to the point where um, I – you know, have a model that that I'm comfortable waging wagering large sums on in the NBA, but you know that's where I would that's where I would start if I was really trying to find an edge. So one thing you're actually saying then is that actually the more variables there are, the the better it is or easier it is to um, quantify it in some fashion that might give you an edge versus if it's just very straightforward. I mean, it's just everyone's going to know it. There's not really going to be a way to look at an edge, but in this case, like with the NBA, like maybe over unders might allow you to gain an edge if you can quantify something like pace yes exactly cool so then uh, then i do want to ask about the nfl as well too so you said that's only about 20 percent of your betting um so nfl in the u.s at least is the number one bet on sport um by a wide margin of course the super bowl is like the most bet on sport uh, or the most bet on sporting event um so why only 20 percent? i'm just kind of curious what you find in the nfl that gives you an advantage or what things you don't like about the nfl betting wise that keeps you away um well one of the things that the, so the 20 percent uh you know simply there's there's 10 times as many baseball games played as, mm-hmm. as nfl games so sheer number of betting opportunities just the major league baseball just dwarfs the nfl so that's a huge contributor to it. Um, the NFL, you know, it, I, I don't want to get too far into like the psychology of betting. Um, I'm not a psychologist, but when there's only 250 games in a season and you, you, you know, you may only bet on, let's say you know, 30% of them. So you're only bet on 75 games. Uh, you might you could you could easily go one two three years without winning, um, even if you have a profitable model, right? It's just the the, the variance is so high um, season by season that it's um, it's tough to take you know emotionally. You might have a you know a, a great year one year and you think you're on top of the world, but it's it's largely due to you know positive variance and and the other the next year it's you know you could have had the same model and lost and it's of no really of no fault to your own. It's just, it's just how, you know, you know, the chips fall. 
And so maybe that's why it's actually so popular among casual bettors is there's a little bit of that um, volatility that's a bit of a rush and uh, the ability to like, you know, kind of maybe it almost kind of makes things more on an even playing field because there's a little bit more luck involved, right? So people feel like they can really, um, you know, know it and understand it better and bet on it and win when maybe in reality, there's more luck involved than they realize. Sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, you go, you know, if you, if you, if you went over the course of a baseball season, chances you've are you're, you, you've <laughs> earned it. If you went over the course of an NFL season, it's like, you know, my dog probably could have done that. You know, uh, that. I wouldn't go to that far. Come on now. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, you pick, you pick 75 games and what's the odds? Does your dog, does your dog bet on sports? Uh, well, my, his name is Clay. Uh, my fiance named that after Clay Thompson. So oh, I was going to say after Clay Matthews. No, Clay. Clay oh, you're a, you're a Wisconsin a guy, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a Packers fan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She, no, she's a huge Warriors fan. So Clay after Clay Thompson. Boo. Boo. And okay, just real quick, real, real quick sidebar. I, I I bitch about this on every podcast episode uh, since the since COVID. Uh, I've been a Bucks fan since 1988. And there was no way they were not making the finals this year. And probably I, I felt like, you know, had an advantage of the Lakers, but it would have been close. That would be close. Yeah. I'm like, of all the seasons, of all the seasons for this to happen is the one where they're historically good. Historically good. Oh, one yeah. Of the best teams ever. And I mean, come on. I mean, how cursed are we? Yeah, that's uh, that's tough. You know, it, I don't want to, you know, go too far, but I, I grew up a, a Bulls fan. Um, I was oh, yeah, born in Chicago, really I was born in Chicago and lived there till I was six years old, right during the Jordan era. So I grew up a Bulls fan, but we would go to Milwaukee uh, in the kind of late '90s to catch, I guess, during the second three-peat to catch the Bulls games because when they'd go to Milwaukee, tickets were like, you know, a third of the price is what they were at the United Center at the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I agree. The Bucks got a tough break this year. You know, hopefully the season comes back and you guys can yeah. um, get out there. But you're right. All the kind of advanced metrics put them, you know, like a top five, top ten team all time, just I know. based on based on those yeah. statistics. So, and 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 I do believe they're going to come back. I do believe they'll play the playoffs. But then, um, you know. Maybe, maybe for the finals, maybe, and it's a big maybe, maybe they would have fans for those. But like, let's say they don't for all the stuff, you know, up to that, you know, then they lose all the home court advantage. And, and so I, I mean, I still don't think it'd be that tough in the East uh, for them to get out of it. But I mean, who knows what the setup's going to be? I mean, is it going to be like in a gym with like, I don't know. I, you know, we just don't know. Right. So um yeah it's it's really certainly a bummer and i'm like i mean the sharks were having a terrible season so i that one i couldn't care less i mean about you know them having to be in the, or them being in the playoffs or not but uh this one was just this one was heart heart-wrenching right um so hopefully they come back look vindication if they come back and play and they go on to win the whole freaking thing then, then you know what <laughs> then this is then almost you have to say like it might be one of the most um historic things on a lot of fronts uh, for them to win. So, um, okay, cool. So let's get into Cleet Street now. So yeah. Cleet Street. Um, yeah. So you're taking your financial and your quantitative uh, and, and, and analytical background and now applying it uh, to a real sports betting product. So tell us more about what Cleet Street is, why you decided to create it, and what it's doing right now. Yeah, so uh, Cleet Street was, was something that I kind of started dreaming up um, last year, last spring. And, you know, I was out in New York at Columbia and uh, as I'm kind of analyzing these these markets and, you know, I'm thinking about taking outside capital to possibly manage and stuff like this um, in the sports betting space, which I ultimately did not do. um, You know, I was studying the market a little bit more and, you know, everyone's saying, hey, there's going to be a big market opportunity with sports books and everything else across the United States. Um, but what I was focusing on was, and, and you might be, you might've as, as well, Mark, um, was just the, the hold that sports books have. I, I looked at, I, I jumped right into the profitability of the sports books. Right. Um, and you know, there's all this information is publicly available. And, you know, I dug into the, I think it was a, aggregated by UNLV for the Nevada sports books. And I, and I saw that sports books are holding, you know, six plus percent, of uh, of wagers and you know in, in my mind I, i'm looking at this and i'm saying well okay if you have minus 110 lines on both sides uh you're paying four and a half percent which in my opinion is 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 too high um but 
Okay, that is what it is for now. But how did we get from four and a half to over six percent? Um, what's what what causes that delta? I mean, that's that's significant. It's a thirty three percent increase. Um, over, Gotta be parlays, no? A lot of it is parlays. Um, a lot of it is um, you know maybe some some shading of in futures bets. Futures bets yeah. is, is a big one of. Yeah. Um, but I just kind of looked at that and said, you know what? That's that's not sustainable. Um, you know, you look at the financial markets and yeah, you know, in the 1920s, you had, you know, huge transaction costs, but that came down to nothing. I mean, you could trade stocks for free now. So I don't know that we'll, you know, you probably have a better answer to this than I do, um, that we're going to get to that level of, uh, of, you know, dividend transaction costs. But I just saw that 6% was just, was outrageous. And I wanted to, uh, do something about it. Um, so I created Cleet Street and, you know, I was thinking, I just want to start educating people. I, I come from a, from a family of educators. Both my parents are teachers and um, I did a lot of guest lecturing kind of in the finance space and I really enjoyed it. And I just figured, well, education is, is probably the one thing that I know how to do to kind of help solve this problem. So, you know, I started, I started writing and, you know, this is, kind of put all the betting stuff that I do aside. Um, I started doing some writing and uh, figured, well, let me provide information and try to build tools that help people, um, you know, don't, you know, help people improve on their ex expected value of negative 6%. Uh, so that's, so that's what we did. So I launched the company um, last year out of the Columbia startup lab in New York Um started with just a newsletter and a development team building an app, which I won't talk too much about right now. I launched an app uh, last fall, uh, the Cleet Street app, which allowed people to kind of track games and track bets. Um, I wasn't very happy with it, so we're actually rebuilding it right now for release in a couple months. Um, but, uh, you know, so I started that kind of aside. That's, you know, a product that we're going to hopefully roll out later. Um, I just figured let's, let's start writing and, uh, and sharing information. So we've got a week, we've got a newsletter. Um, the plan was if sports were around to make it a daily newsletter, uh, something that's completely free. We were, I was, when I was in New York, I was, you know, really inspired by morning brews, um, kind of approach to this, you know, new type of like newsletter business, um, how they could, you know, provide information and, um, you know, something that's really useful and absolutely free. So I was inspired by that. Uh, so we started, I just started writing and, um, uh, and yeah, that's kind of, kind of where we are right now. Um, we've got, like I said, a development team building out a new app, which will come in uh, probably the end of Q3. Um, you know, what that's going to look like is the ability to kind of track your bets Um track your portfolio, kind of keep up with the games. I'd like to think of it as, as kind of a cross between, you know, your like ESPN app and uh, and uh, your Robinhood app, you know. So nice. so something right in that sphere. Um, and it's going to be a tool. I'm not, I'm not planning on charging anything for it. Um, you know, it's, I want it to be free. And um, same with the newsletter. I, I really don't. I, I really don't like the idea of reaching into the pockets of sports bettors who are already getting somewhat of a raw deal. So, um, so that's kind of the, 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 the thesis behind what, what we're building at Cleet Street. Right. And so just real quickly for those that are in the audience that want to uh, just see what is currently uh, available in the newsletter and also just great information's on your website. So I'll just let everyone know. So it's C L E A T hyphen the word street.com. Uh, so for those that want to check it out, um, we'll also post it uh, in the description of our, uh, of our podcast today for those that want to check it out. Um, but going back to the percentages and who's getting a raw deal and why bookmakers charge what they charge and all that good stuff. So, so a couple of things. So first of all, and this is obviously near and dear to us at Zen Sports because we charge significantly less than what a traditional bookmaker charges. So one of the problems with traditional bookmakers is just their overhead, right? So, uh, I mean, let's start in the worst or most egregious situations with um, with uh, those that have physical brick and mortar. So if you have a physical brick and mortar, you've got like 
like physical location. You've got rent, you've got tables, chairs, TVs, kiosks, you got all that kind of stuff that you've got to manage. And then of course, then you get into the people uh, and you've got, you know, teams of people that are like coming up with odds or whatever like that. And so the problem is, is when you have all this overhead, you really almost, you know, I'm, by the way, I'm not justifying their, uh, why they're doing it. I'm just simply saying, this is, uh, you know, this is what, this is what they're doing. Um, and so that's the problem. The problem is all the overhead. So like, that's, I mean, to, of course, like, you know, put in the shameless plug for Zen sports. I mean, that's why we are doing the whole peer to peer thing and using technology is the only reason we're able to charge lesser fees is because of, um, is because of the technology piece eliminating that overhead. I mean, I just don't see how you can almost be profitable if you have all of that overhead um, charging lower. So then getting into, you know, who, like getting into like why they still make money and, and how, why people still pay for those fees, et cetera. So first of all, most of the betting out there is still the casual sports better who doesn't give a shit about what they're paying for the fee. They just want action, right? Yeah. So I think we got like, that is probably, I don't have numbers in front of me, so I'm going to make something up, but I'm sure that represents four fifths of the market, maybe more. Um, is just your casual better just wants to be able to place a bet just wants to have fun uh, they're willing to pay the fee for the cost of the entertainment for the cost of being in action um, they just don't care then you have maybe the semi-casual guy who understands the fees doesn't like the fees um, won't just be willing to pay whatever but um, so they'll shop around but they also it doesn't it doesn't come into like any kind of specific like model or um, profitability model at the end of the day of, as to what they're looking for. And then probably then the third and final group are the folks like you who like it makes all the difference in the world and you just flat out won't pay, you know, higher uh, obnoxious fees um, because, you know, that's a, unless it's a really, really good value bet. So I'm just kind of curious on your thoughts. You know, does that sound about right? Um, does, uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts as to where it's been on the on the fee structure side and where it's going because th- th- this is actually one of the biggest value propositions that people like about our product is the significantly lower fees because the whole technology piece um uh reducing that overhead yeah i would you know your ratios sound all right to me i don't you know i obviously i i don't have um really any better data than you when it comes to kind of the demographics uh of sports betters um but I think the way I like to think about it is most of the recreational sports bettors aren't profit maximizers. They're utility maximizers, right? And utility, you know, shopping for all those for the best line um, or maybe betting kind of the boring uh, types of wagers is not the thrill that people are seeking, right? There's, there are, you know, externalities to sports betting and that is in, in the form of entertainment. And when someone wants to, when decides to place a bet, you know, 80, 80% um, of, of recreational sports bettors, um, it's, it's not worth the computational effort to, to go through those exercises to try and maximize expected, expected value or maximize profit. You know, they're really trying to maximize their entertainment. Um, of course, you know, they like it better when they win rather than when they lose, but, um, you know, that's not, uh, that's not the the chief objective, I don't think, for a lot of people. Right. So in some ways, I kind of think that the casual sports better really pays for the party for everyone else uh, to some degree, um, because otherwise it could probably be much higher, <laughs> um, you know, than what it is right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it could. I mean, if. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't try to dream up that scenario <laughs> because, uh, you know, my it might give me nightmares, but, uh, it absolutely could. I think if, and you see it in some States, I think like Montana rolled out, um, you know, something where they're charging like, you know, negative 125 on both sides or something like that. Something crazy. Wow. wow. So, and you had some States contemplating a, a mandatory 10% hold, I think in Tennessee that went right. through. Um, yep. so, you know, like to me, that's a, that's a, just a blank slap in the face, but you know, some people might, might not either a might not realize it or really you know might not care yeah yeah for sure okay so let's get into some of your uh, methods and you don't have to give like your secret sauce or your proprietary secrets away but i just want to kind of understand some of these terms and uh i mean i understand some of them but some people in our audience might not and just want to kind of see how you look at these things so um the term value betting or or finding value is is 
you know, a very common term in sports betting. So what does that mean to you and how do you use that to approach which bets to accept or not accept? So value betting, um, at the end of the day, betting is about probabilities and it's about the, the probability of an event happening, um, versus the, of, of actually happening versus the probability versus the, um, reward that you're going to be given if that event actually occurs, right? So um, whenever I'm thinking about value betting, I'm thinking about um, it, when can I get, when can I buy something for less than it's, than it's worth? So let's just throw out some silly example where, you know, there's really no sports going on right now. So it's kind of hard to think of um, something too fun, but let's say, you know, Okay, let's go to the Bucks, right? You're a Bucks guy. All right, let's say the Bucks. You know, we we build a model and we say the Bucks have a fifty percent chance of winning the finals. Um, well, they're priced at say plus two, I don't know, plus two seventy right now, maybe plus three hundred. Um, which to break even at plus three hundred, uh, you only have to win twenty five percent of the time. So the market price is 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 twenty five percent and the true price that you come up with is 50 percent so you know what what you're saying is i could buy something for 25 effectively i could buy something for 25 cents um, when it's really worth 50 cents so that's how i would every every type of kind of analyses that i that i do um, boils down to the break-even probability meaning what's the price in the market versus um the, the true probability or my estimate of the true probability. So when I see that something is um, a significant deviation in those prices, uh, that's, that's what value betting is to me. Got it. And then what kind of tools and resources do you use to try to find the best value? Um, so, you know, one of the things that I like to do is, and, and I mentioned this is by just as, is starting with the lower big markets. Um, you know, if you're chasing futures bets and um, you know some prop bets, the hold on some of those markets is you know anywhere between let's say twenty to fifty percent. Sometimes um, some of them are really ridiculous, and it's just really hard to find good value in those places. Um, so let's say, for example, you are you you want to bet futures, right? I generally don't bet futures. I don't like people holding on to my money for all that long. Um, but let's say, you know, you are, you know, the baseball season's coming up and you're a Milwaukee Brewers fan. And uh, you say, you know, I, I, I think they're going to do well this year. Um, so you might want to bet on their, their win totals for the season. Uh, well, you know, a little, Generally, they'll say like, okay, we'll set the win total at 85 and a half games and they'll offer you maybe minus 110 on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, but what what they'll do in, in sportsbooks know that it's a lot more fun to bet on a team to, you know, overperform than it is to, to, to bet on the, you know, them to underperform, right? If you're a Brewers fan, you'd much rather bet on the Brewers to have a good season than you would to bet on the Cubs to have a bad season, for example. <laughs> Right. Well, I don't know about that one. That maybe. one I might want to bet on. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Maybe, 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 maybe I'm wrong, but the sports books, the sports books believe that. And so they will shade their lines accordingly. So, and I, I wrote a, a blog piece a month or two Cubs, ago. On Cubs this. under 60 this year. Oh, Although, no. well, with fewer games, they might actually be under 60 minutes. Okay, maybe, maybe. maybe. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> uh, but they'll they'll shade their lines upwards. So if you were to take, like, the sum of all the win totals in a, in a, in a win totals market, um, add them all up, you'll find that generally the total number of wins projected by the sportsbooks exceeds the total number of games being played. Um and this is a, this is their attempt to just say, well, we know the recreational bettors love to bet on their favorite team to overperform, um, so we're going to take advantage of that. So even though it's a minus one ten line, which you know generally they're going to hold about four, you know theoretically hold four and a half percent on, um, they really you know to bet the over, you're probably paying closer to seven or eight percent and betting the under on those games, you're probably only paying one to two percent. So just you know thinking, you know, grabbing that data 
um, and thinking about it that way and just assess, you know, that's, it's not, you know, this doesn't require a ton of analytical work. And I think it's some of this lower, lower hanging fruit that I really try to write about a lot um, because it's just recognizing some of these things and how the sports are taking advantage of the better psychology uh, to enhance their profits, um, which, you know, comes to the detriment of the better. But so just real quickly on the fee. So both sides are putting minus 110 on either side of it. Um, then really, you're really talking um, about and, you know, if it, if it pays out uh, then 100, really, if, if they f- if they fill out both sides equally, we're really talking like 9.1 percent really is their hold on, on that, um, right? 20 divided by 220. No, it's going to be 10. It's going to be 10 divided by 220. Um, well, but no, if they're taking 110 from each person, they they've gathered 220. And then they're paying out two hundred dollars. Uh, they're going to pay out. They're going to pay out two ten because someone put up one ten to win a hundred. Oh, they will pay up, out that. They'll pay out that full extra ten on top of it. Yeah. So you bet. You you know you bet. You bet one hundred and ten. I bet one hundred and ten. Um, together we bet two twenty. Um, one of us is going to win. One of us is going to lose. When I. Let's we'll let you win here, Mark. <laughs> when you win, when you win, they're going to give you back your 110 original 110 wager plus 100 in, in profit. But don't they take they don't take a fee off that? Because I usually be, I usually don't bet in Vegas on these things. I usually bet. Uh, so I actually prefer decimal odds. Oh, OK. I don't. So that's why I, I usually look at those. And so for me, it's easy. Like I see one point nine one. Is that. And so then I see the nine percent is basically. Uh, but that's nine divided by uh 200 right that's so that's correct correct yeah so that's four and a half percent correct so yeah so that's i guess their total hold so they're they're inching it up towards you know six seven eight percent um, on the overs in that scenario uh, yeah. on the win total overs and leaving the win total unders um with simply like maybe one to two percent hold uh which is i mean hey that's that's not bad and then you do a little line shopping on top of that and you you could find yourself some break even or probably slightly EV bets by doing that without even doing any really rigorous analysis. And then the futures bets. I mean, I see futures and parlays, I mean, over 10%. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. you know, easily. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, futures bets are 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 terrible. <laughs> I mean, you know, yep. occasionally... And you have to have your money on hold. I mean, your money's, you know, you don't have access to your money forever. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's a big thing. Um I mean, I think there's pros and cons to that. Okay. So I, if you are a positive expected value better, or you, you know, um, you're striving to be, then it's definitely a bad thing. I mean, we, I told you how, you know, we started with a hundred thousand, but we wind up betting, you know, close to $2 million last year. Um, we turned our capital over 20 times. So that is, you know, a, a, a great use of capital, but, you know, conversely, if you're a negative EV player, um, your expectation is to lose, um, and then if you you know if you win, you're just going to keep turning that capital over and lose, and, and that those losses compound. You know if you're going to pay, uh, you know if you're going to wind up paying five percent or four and a half percent, you know how many times over, you know, I guess you let someone sit on it for you know six months and let them just take a twenty percent you know cut off the top. Um, I guess that's one way to think about it and possibly justify it, but. Um, I still, I still, I don't think anyone, you know, strives to be a losing better. So I just wouldn't do that. Right. I think so. It's funny. Um, so I've seen, uh, so my brother-in-law hit a pretty nice, um, uh, uh, futures bet. He, he picked, uh, LSU, uh, oh, nice. to win it all, uh, back in September, back in early September. Oh, so wow. I think he got That's really nice good value. Yeah. He got really good value on that, but we were there in Vegas over Labor Day. So he um, he was able to get really good value on that um, because obviously you know they were uh, they weren't expected uh, to, to win it and so I do think there's exceptions um, you know to that but for me having my money tied up for you know three four five months is not appealing partially for the reason you just gave but also just I mean there's other things I could be doing it with as well for other investments or or leisure or whatever it might be it just it and and especially when you can get bets in real time on upcoming games, it's like, gosh, I mean, why would I, it just feels like the value has to really be extraordinary to have your money tied up for that long. Absolutely. And absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. And, you know, it's a little better in this digital age, but, you know, back in the day when, uh, you know, you're, you're getting a bet, you know, a physical bet ticket from, 
from Vegas, let's say, you know, there's a non-zero chance that you lose that ticket, you know, sometime, yes. you know, over the next six months too. So that's, that's not working in your favor. Well, and, and so that's a whole separate topic with regards to paper slip betting and, uh, you know, betting, you know, like what we have, for example, with Sports, which is all mobile. You don't have to worry about paper tickets. So actually last year in Nevada, uh, mobile betting uh, is, was close to 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, of the 5.3 billion wagered there. Uh, so, and I think in the next few years, it's going to be like 80, 90%. It's just, you know, that's where everything is headed. Yeah, I think uh, they- You don't I, have to worry about paper slips. I think they stunted that growth early on by making you physically go in to make yeah, a deposit. They, 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 they still make you go to register in person. For example, we're going through this right now because we're going to get operational in Nevada later this year. So one of the things that we have to do there is we have to- uh, have people register in person. They don't have to make a deposit, but they have to register in uh, person. Yeah. Okay. So I think that eventually will go by the wayside as well, uh, just because it's just there's the technology to do KYC and AML verification. Yep. It's good enough, not good, not good enough as in just good enough. It's it's great, and so it's plenty sufficient to do the types of KYC stuff that's needed. So I think eventually you'll see that in person requirement go away uh, for uh, physical brick and mortar locations as well. Yeah. Um, Cool. Uh, so a couple last things I want to touch on here um, is money management. So you've t- touched on this a little bit up to this point, and your website talks about this quite a bit um, with regards to money managing money. And uh, I did some day trading of cryptocurrencies back in the day. So uh, money management was always a big, big theme for us as well, too. So talk to me more about what that means in the world of sports betting, how you view it, how you look at it, what's good, what's not. Um, and, and some advice for those that have a, a struggle to try and manage their money. Yeah. Um, thanks for bringing this up. I mean, I think money management is one of the overlooked aspects of, of sports betting for sure. Um, you know, people generally bet way too much. I mean, last year we were, um, you know, I was, we were betting maybe 1% of our portfolio on a game, um, sometimes less, sometimes it was, you know, half a percent and, people would reach out to us and say, so you're telling me if I have a thousand bucks, I should bet five or $10. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and people don't like to hear that. They like to say, you know, I, I, I think I should be betting, you know, you know, maybe I want to bet like $50 on this game. I said, well, you know, $50 is a 5% bet allocation. You must have a really good, you know, you should be really confident in your model um, because that risk of overbetting is is really significant. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things I wrote about was how if you have a, you know, finite bankroll, um, think about like if you go to, go to a blackjack table, um, you know, you're more, much more likely to leave as a loser than as a winner because once you're out, you're out. You know, the game's over, you go home. Um, and, you know, you don't, as a sports better, you, you don't, you don't want to put yourself in that situation. Um, so we're, we're generally pretty conservative with our bet sizing. Um, we also like to, you know, there's other things to probably take into consideration, um, such as um, kind of like the risk return of your performance. Um, I don't know if, if Mark's on this is something you're looking at, but also the the correlation of, of assets. I mean, thankfully, there's not a ton of correlation between, um, you know, various sports bets. But if you have a model that uh, is, you know, let's say hates left-handed pitchers, um, there's going to be some correlation between your bets because you're going to be constantly fading left-handed pitchers, for example. Right. And I'm sure you, I mean, I'm sure you came up with similar stuff in the, in the crypto space. I mean, those assets, you know, are you know, at least somewhat correlated to one another. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Actually, they're almost all correlated. Yeah, Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there's a little bit of divergence there in a couple of them, but yeah, they all, they all tend to follow the King. Yeah. So, um, so cool. So what advice do you have for those that are out there? Is you, I mean, do you need to have like, I don't know, let's call it, um, uh, should your bet never be more than hundred times your bankroll, um, or uh, sorry, one, one hundredth of your bankroll, um, type of thing? Or what do you have like kind of some specific guidance or advice on what it uh, looks like? I would say, I mean, I would, I would, you know, 2% fine, maybe 3% if you, if it's a really good bet. Anything more than that is is pretty aggressive. I mean, you have to be extremely confident and extremely aggressive. Um, so, like, if you had a fifty-five, you know, the Kelly criterion, and 
we don't need to get a full lesson on it, but it's the it's the, the um, developed by a, you know some mathematicians back in the '60s to optimize wealth growth. Um, it would say if you have a, if you have a game that's going to win 55 percent of the time at minus 110, um, the absolute maximum you should bet on that game is five and a half percent of your bankroll. Uh, but you have to know for absolute certainty that your model is picking at 55%. Um, you, we don't know that this isn't, this isn't, a you know, a, a, a dice, which we know with, you know, certainty, if it's not a loaded dice that it's going to land on six, one, one, uh, six times, um, uh, we're using models to predict these win probabilities. So you should always discount them a little bit. So I would, you know, if I wanted to be extremely aggressive, maybe, maybe two, percent three percent but i think generally a good rule of thumb is uh you know maybe stick at one percent i wouldn't i wouldn't go much higher than that wow okay so that's i mean that's very eye-opening to probably a lot of people that like to bet on sports in the sense that you know they're like you said they're like 50 bucks that's only one twentieth of my bankroll like who cares like that's not a big deal like i've got plenty of runway on this thing when in reality like the volatility on it can be so much larger than people um, understand, right? It's the same thing like when I go to Vegas and play craps or whatever like that, you know, you want a bankroll that can see you through the ups and downs. Um, well, there seem to be quite a few ups and downs. Craps, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're right. Like it's, it's uh, you know, there's, there's volatility with all, all sorts of things. I mean, you could get just an unlucky streak where people are getting injured. You, know, you get like ref bias. Um, you get weather conditions. I mean, who knows? I mean, at baseball, especially because there's random bounces of the ball yeah. um, that can all always go against you. Um, so you have to have that bankroll to see you through enough of those tough times um, so that you don't get washed out. Yeah. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, last couple topics here. So chasing steam and efficiency uh, markets. Um, so they go hand in hand. So first of all, um, can you define for the audience what chasing steam means and then tie that into um, kind of markets and their efficiencies? Sure. So ch- chasing steam is uh, more or less when, uh, when you know, you have sportsbooks all around the world. And when large wagers come in from known betters or betting syndicates, um, large sharp players, um, and they take an aggressive s- stance on one side of the game, um, sportsbooks are going to move, and and the, you know that sportsbook's going to move, and the rest of the the rest of the world's going to follow suit um, shortly thereafter uh, because they don't want to leave an arbitrage opportunity or middling opportunity um, out there for very long. So uh, chasing steam is effectively seeing when this price movement happens um, at one of the, you know, let's say more efficient or faster moving sports books and then attacking the laggard sports books that haven't moved as quickly um, and to get a bet down at the price that is more favorable um, than where the market is, is going to be in consensus shortly thereafter. So like an example, if, um, you know, if, if someone sees, you know, the, I don't know, the Jets plus seven and, and, and quickly across all sports books is moving from seven down to five and a half, maybe someone got injured. Um, you see that single singular sports book sitting there still at seven, like a sitting duck. Um, chasing steam is pouncing on that sitting duck when it's, while well, it's still there and ripe for the taking. Um, as far as, you know, why does that happen though? How would, how would they not move? I mean, like, isn't, aren't they all getting the data from kind of the same places? Like, how are they not able to move faster than that? And by the way, I mean, how long is a laggard? I mean, if it's like milliseconds, I guess I understand it, but if it's like an hour or two, how would that Oh happen? no, it's, it's, it's never an hour or two. It might be a couple minutes. Um, it might be, you know, it might be less than that. It might be 30 seconds, might be 90 seconds. Um, could be a little longer and it could be just a stale line that someone leaves up when, uh, they think they knew who the starting pitcher is, for example, but it, they made a pitching change and that book didn't get that information or didn't quantify that information quick enough. Um, you know, I, I don't try to make it a practice of chasing steam. It's a, it's a good way to get yourself kicked out of a sports book. Um, but, you know, if, if there's value for the taking, um, I'm not going to let it go by, I guess, if, you've already, if I've already got a fundamental view on that game. So I guess back to your question on, on, on the data provided, I'm not, you know, I, I don't really understand. I'm not so into the B2B um, 
but you know with the data providers and sports books um you would think in this day and age everything would move almost seamlessly and it's probably moving more and more further and further in that direction um i'm just saying from my experience last year i was i was probably in maybe seven or eight different sports books and um there were times you know some onshore i was living in i was living in jersey last year um so so some some legally operating ones, some offshore. And, you know, there were there were some opportunities you'd see um, from time to time. But if it's only like for 30, 60, 90 seconds, do you have like alerts set up in your phone to let you know if there's a, a an arbitrage opportunity or is it you like just happen to catch it as you were browsing? Um, I have a odds dashboard that uh, has like, you know, 10 sports books uh, with their live odds. So when that thing flashing you know i've you know a multiple monitor set up here and when one of the monitors is always on that when that thing starts flashing or lighting up um you take a glance over and like i said i'm not chasing steam just to chase steam but if i had already had a price on that game that i thought was favorable and um the market seems to be moving i i better get on it or else i'm gonna lose that price Right. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes tons of sense. Um, yeah. And so, you know, how that ties into like efficient markets, right. You know, you said that before that, you know, it's certainly better than 20, 30 years ago. I'm just surprised that like with the data that's out there that everybody doesn't have the same data. Now they don't have your model, which is uh, clearly, you know, proprietary in terms of how you evaluate it, but in terms of the actual data that they have to go into that model, I mean, everybody should have that, so then is it really just about just similar to like, again, like day or, or, or um, swing trading or, you know, understanding kind of like the different, uh, you know, financial markets that are out there? Is it really about taking that data and plugging it into the models that you have versus theirs? Uh, or, I, I mean, I'm just wondering why everyone can't ultimately come to the same conclusion that if they all have that data. Um, I think there's, there's, uh, I mean, okay. Yes. I mean, in theory, if everyone had the same data and the same model, they'd come to the same number. Um, but I think you, you see really sharp people disagreeing on games from time to time. Um, you absolutely do see that. So that happens. Uh, but I think you got to really start thinking about market efficiency and, and, and tying back a little bit toward um, to what we were discussing before with profit maximization versus utility maximization. Um, is So the, the efficient market hy- hypothesis, um, if, you know, there's a lot of various forms of it, but in its weakest form says you can't predict which way prices are going. Technical analysis is basically worthless. And you have a large number of profit maximizing uh, market participants. Um, so right. a couple things wrong with that is that, well, first off, I don't think everyone is profit maximi- profit maximizing. Um, right. That's exactly. And that's, and I don't know if that's ever going to change. I mean, the ratios might change as you get, you know, more sophisticated capital in there. Certainly um, it might become a shark and minnow type situation. Like, like daily fantasy did has become um, like those who have subscribed to Elon Musk's Neuralink and those who haven't. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, <laughs> but you know, as far as, as long as sports are going to be around, people are going to want to bet on sports. Um, they're going to, you know, as long as there's still, you know, fans in the stands and people are still buying, you know, jerseys to their favorite team, they're going to want to place bets on those teams. And um, they're not thinking about it in, quantifying exactly how much, uh, you know, what my expected value is on this bet as much as they're saying, I want a little action on this game. Um, You know, I feel really strongly and I'm going to the game, therefore I want to bet it, for example. Uh, So as long as that's, as long as that's around, you have um, plenty of, let's say, non-profit maximizers in the market. So that, that makes it um, challenging to get to, you know, a perfectly efficient market. Uh, now, nothing's perfectly efficient, right? And even the stock market's not perfectly efficient. You know, there's still technical traders out there um, that, you know, do well. If it was perfectly efficient, there'd be, there would be technical traders. So, is, right. so it's, it's hard to say the market's perfectly efficient um, anywhere, but definitely not in the sports betting world. I mean, yes, the closing line is, you know, I'll, I'll get some heat from this because there's some closing line, you know, lifers out closing line value lifers out there that'll say the closing line is efficient the only way to profit is by you know getting a better line than the closing line but i would i would push back on that a little bit and say um 
yes, it's more efficient than the opening line because there's more information out, but that doesn't mean you can't find um, a good bet, you know, two minutes before the game time. Um, yeah, of course. Still I mean, book, bookmakers make mistakes, right? I mean, they make mistakes all right, the time. Or the, or the, or the market yeah. makes a mistake. We did a, I did a study um, on baseball naturally because there's just great great data and um on how the prices move for large favorites in the two hours preceding first pitch and what we've found is that from two hours before first pitch up until first pitch um the lines systematically move um towards the favorite right so it's it's not it's not a huge number. It's uh, in aggregate, it's probably an average of maybe four or five cents, and you know, on like a minus two hundred. But just that movement shows that if you can systematically find which way prices are moving, um, you can't therefore then say everything was systematically mispriced two hours for game time just to correct itself at game time. Um, right. That's a hard argument to make, and I. Um, I, it just, you know, it's just evidence to me that, uh, there's still plenty of inefficiencies in these markets. Right. Now that makes sense. Okay. Last question then is for the casual to semi-casual sports better that doesn't have time to build a model or to really study, study, study the data. What is one piece of advice you'd give to them to help make their betting just a little bit more quantitative or data driven than maybe what it is currently right now for themselves? Um, shop for lines, bet into the lowest VIG markets than you can, um, and try to, uh, try to avoid, just think a little bit about where sports books might be, um, actively taking advantage of fan biases, if that makes sense. Like I, I gave the example of the, the over right, the, 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 the win totals, like think right. about that. I mean, you could, without any analytical help, like any, anything sophisticated, um, you should be able to get very close to break even, um, by following a couple, you know, a couple general, um, you know, I guess tools. Right. No, that, that's great. Well, um, Dan, this was, uh, this was awesome. I learned an absolute ton. Uh, I know our audience did, uh, again, this is, uh, this was Dan Rubin uh, from cleatstreet.com. Uh, and uh, really appreciate you joining the podcast today, Dan. Uh, this was super informative. I know everyone in the audience is going to uh, listen to this and, and feel the same way and maybe re-listen to it as, as this can just be great betting advice in general uh, that people can come back to and uh, remember if, uh, if maybe things are a little bit tough for them right now, uh, coming back and, and revisiting some core tenants and principles of how to do things and, and just kind of the psychology of it as well. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. Really appreciate you being on the show. Hey, thanks, Mark. I really enjoyed it as well.